0: This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who began the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificates tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian Ethics, Dynamics of Power, and Gender in Christian Leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership dash scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's podcast conversation is brought to you by the Baptist Commons of Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Several School of Divinity alumni have thrived within Baptist life, serving in significant positions of leadership in local churches and in larger denominational organizations. The school's newly launched Baptist Commons program draws on the success, fostering opportunities for mentoring and internships so students can network with alumni and other Baptist leaders. The Baptist Commons honors the school's Baptist heritage and its role in fostering excellence among diverse communities of Baptists. To find out more, visit divinity.wfu.edu. Our guest for this week's conversation is a speaker, a consultant, and author of a new book, Relationomics. Dr. Randy Ross, thank you for joining the conversation.
1: Well, Andy, it's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: Now, for those of us that aren't familiar with your story, tell us a little bit more about you.
1: Well, um, for the first 20 years of my career, I pastored churches in, in Texas and in Florida. I actually had the privilege of planning the church in West Palm Beach, and we saw that uh, grow for about a 10-year run. And that was a wonderful time of, uh, of my life and, and foundational for everything else that I have done. But then God distinctly called me into the marketplace. Um, I had the opportunity when I was in the, in the pulpit to begin to spend more and more time with some of our business leaders in the boardroom and speaking to their groups and just fell in love with the marketplace from the standpoint that I realized the next great spiritual awakening is most likely going to take place in the market. Um, and so since we spend the vast majority of our lives there, I felt compelled to begin to take a message into the for profit space that would help people uh, not only find fulfillment and meaning and purpose in their work, but help them understand, um, that their work is truly a form of worship. And, and how they work shows what they worship. And because so many people, uh, if Gallup's research over the last 20 years is right, and I believe it is, the vast majority of people in the workforce don't like their jobs. They're, they're only about a 30% level of um, engagement among people, meaning that they have a high emotional attachment to the work experience. And just felt that needs to change. And so even though I do most of my work, in the for profit space with Fortune 500 companies, where I obviously can't refer to chapter and verse, all of the principles that we teach are biblically based.
0: Let's back up a little bit. Um, kind of your transition reminds me um, about um, kind of a world altering conversation I had. I was part of a, a postgraduate leadership development program. There's about 25 ministers in the room. We're all living into our first call. and. Some of the most profound mentors looked at us and said, "Half of you raise your hand." So half of us raise your hand. And he said, "Yeah, half of y'all are not going to be doing what you're doing now ten years from now, and you might want to consider having some sort of backup plan." You know, so if you take us a little bit more into your journey, you, you did a, a bachelor's of religion and philosophy at at Baylor. Like Second bearers for half of our people in CBF life. I feel like they went to Baylor. Uh, you went on right. to do a seminary, Master of Divinity, and then, then on to this business and leadership consulting. Tell us a little bit more about kind of what you were sensing in your calling and that that shift that took place.
1: Well, it's really a fascinating story of God's calling on my life because it, it, there was a point that I would never, ever have imagined myself moving out of the, the pulpit, the pastorate, because I loved it so much. It was just uh, where I felt God had called me. But just as distinctly as he called me into the ministry, he called me into the for-profit space. And there was a a time in my life uh, that was um, crucial that he just spoke deeply into my heart, and I began to catch this vision for a much broader impact, an opportunity to touch more lives. And so I uh, had the privilege of working with a couple of very faith-forward organizations, one that consistently found itself on Fortune's top 100 places to work, and began to uh, crystallize a message about the importance of culture when it comes to organizational health. And it's interesting, Andy, because so many of the principles that I, I learned and studied as I was getting my doctorate there at Southwestern about how do you create um, church growth movements. Those are some of the very same principles now that I'm able to take into the marketplace and help organizations understand that if they really want to inspire people, they have to use more than just monetary remuneration, that there has to be a sense of purpose and passion behind what people do. And so in order for them to be able to bring their best self to the table, you have to tap into... um, cause you have to tap into the passion you have to draw out a sense of purpose that you're not just doing business to to make a dollar but you're truly involved in business to improve the human condition to touch people's lives in a deep way and leave a lasting impact so really the call i believe in the workplace is to make a difference in people's lives that's uh internally within the organization and and obviously there has to be external outside the organization but I know that many of your listeners are involved either in church life or or the not-for-profit space and I would just suggest that when we talk about the whole concept of of volunteerism and how do you how do you get people to uh, give of their discretionary time and resources that we have to be able to cast a compelling vision and help them understand the true difference that they're making in the lives of others.
0: Now in in 2008, you founded Remarkable. It's a consulting and advisory firm specializing in team development and organizational health. Tell us a little bit more about the firm and its formation.
1: Well, Remarkable, um, we hung our shingle out in 2008, had the opportunity to to work with a, a couple of organizations that had great cultures and wanted to take those same concepts and principles and be able to to broadcast those on a, a larger level. And so we began to do a lot of work with senior level executives in organizations that either had a strong commitment to culture or they realized that they needed to to drastically address and overhaul uh, their existing culture. One of the things that we, we say is that wherever people gather, you're going to have a culture. And that culture is either going to be by design or it's going to be by default. And there are a lot of organizations that have uh, cultures by default. They never really give it much thought or reflection. They don't, they don't think about how they can move it in a positive direction. And when, you're, when you don't have your hand on the helm of culture, when you're not constantly thinking about how do we improve relationships within the organization that help us to move toward maturity, then I don't care whether you're in the corporate space or if you're in the church space, if we as leaders don't understand the power and the importance of culture and we don't become not only champions for culture but keepers of the culture, then one day we will wake up and we'll have a culture by default and we may not like what we have. So Remarkable was really established or launched in order to have a significant impact on organizations around this whole culture conversation and organizational health. So uh,
0: take us in kind of day-to-day for you as you equip um,
1: partnering organizations. The message of cultural transformation that we take into the marketplace, we really set forth in our, our first book entitled Remarkable. And Remarkable is a book that I had the privilege of writing with a friend of mine who um, was the vice president of marketing for a little organization here in Atlanta called Chick-fil-A. And many of your listeners may be familiar with not only their uh, their food, but also their culture, which arguably is one of the, the best in the land. But it was it's not a book about Chick-fil-A by any far stretch, but it is a book about a lot of the principles that they, they put into practice on a daily basis. And they have truly been remarkable, not only in terms of their, their growth and expansion, but in terms of their customer service. And so Remarkable is a leadership parable that we wrote to help organizations begin to think about the simple idea that your culture is the single most important differentiating factor that, that you possess as an organization. And on the heels of that, we've we've come out with a lot of training materials that help organizations to embed the principles that we espouse in the book uh, deeper within organizational life. We, we also do a lot of consulting. Uh, We're in advisory practice. And so we do everything from coaching to workshops to leadership development programs. But we just released another book entitled Relationomics. Subtitle is Business Powered by Relationships. And really excited about this new book because it builds on the foundation that we laid in the book Remarkable and really talks to leaders about how do you how do you craft uh, these compelling environments that encourage and inspire people to bring their best to every endeavor. And it's interesting because although you would think that that um, applying the principles that lead to healthy relationships would be pretty much common sense, unfortunately, it's not common practice. And um, I work all the time in the church world and in the corporate world. And see an abundance of unhealthy relationships, which drain the organization and deprive it of a lot of the potential that it has to truly make a lasting difference and a mark on the world. But there are challenges that keep us from being able to reach our full potential because we don't have the capacity and sometimes a lack of understanding of what is required to build healthy relationships. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you wrote in the book, the great deception is the notion that we can ascend to greatness apart from relationships. The deception also encompasses the faulty premise that you could be a strong leader without healthy relationships. For you, what Mm -hmm. what was going on in the organizations that you were working with that you needed to, to write this book?
1: Well, there are a lot of things that we saw in terms of unhealthy behavior and unhealthy influences in a lot of the organizations that we were working with. And that that could range the spectrum from an underlying unhealthy sense of competition, which typically breeds problems like a self-promotion, a self-protection, pretentiousness, perfectionism, all of those things are the result of being uh, inauthentic and lack of transparency. So, Unhealthy competition uh, could be leading to uh, emotional leakage within the organization. But then you also have other issues. It could be just poor communication. Um, one of the biggest drains of energy is unresolved conflict. Quite frankly, many organizations uh, have a lot of jockeying and political activity and, and have um, offenses that are swept under the carpet challenges that are left unaddressed that that create an ongoing level of unhealthy tension within the life of the organization so there are a lot of factors um, that contribute to a, a poor a pool poor or what I would call a toxic culture and so we wanted to begin to uh, set forth some ideas some practices some strategies just practical wisdom on how organizations can create environments that will help lead people toward greater levels of maturity. And there's a lot that goes into that. But, uh, but that's what we wanted to do is we wanted to provide some, some practical wisdom and, frankly, the needed hope that um, today's leader, leaders need to untangle some of the more challenging issues related to team development.
0: I want to, we'll, we'll come back to uh, vulnerability and accountability here in just a bit, but I want to get back to some words you were, you were saying about competition. I don't, I don't care what vocational field you're in, whether business or clergy, there's always this undercurrent of competition. Within the realm of clergy, it tends to be people vying for the same job or attempting to gain a larger audience on, on social media. And you wrote, we compete because we love the thrill of the challenge and it gives us a way to compare ourselves to others. We all want to be seen as a winner, but if our tendency towards competition causes us to self-promote to the point of disrespecting others or minimizing their contribution, then we can also destroy collaboration. Take us a little deeper there.
1: Well, you'll almost always uh, garner more through collaboration than you ever will through competition. And competition not only is innate within us because we we don't want to be bested by anyone, but it's also reinforced by society. Um, We we were taught from a a young age, you need to be a winner. You've got to be the best. And so there's this constant tension within our spirits to compete. And organizations often leverage that, unfortunately, to their own demise. But humility is really this ability to understand our humanity and very quickly be able to acknowledge our weaknesses. The way I like to say it is feeling comfortable in your own skin, no matter how freckled with failure it may be. But in a lot of organizations, it's not okay to talk about your failures. Uh, That's seen as a weakness. But in reality, it's in our weaknesses that the strength of others can be leveraged to complement and complete um, the community you know, we know that we were designed by God to live in community. The challenge is, it goes all the way back to a concept that we talk about in the book called Luciferianism, this idea that you can attain self-fulfillment, self-enlightenment apart from community, which is the original lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, you can become as knowledgeable as God. Uh, without being in a relationship with God, if you just eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and so this Luciferian lie that is perpetuated is the idea that we can attain maturity apart from healthy, deep relationships. It's just—it's just quite frankly not possible. And so, um, competition often kills healthy relationships. And so, we wanted to address that idea in the book and, and talk about. How do we push away from or change our perspective on competition? Because in, in organizational life or, or any other organization, for that matter, uh, church or profit, the idea is that we always want to compete for the customer, for the client, for the other team members. So we want to be a value creator to bring more to the table than we take away. Because when we do that, then we make a lasting, positive wake in the world.
0: This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years center consultants coaches and educators have been supporting congregations clergy and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life including training ministers to manage transition helping congregations work through polarizing conflict coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry and assisting congregations in discerning god's call to future missions and ministry Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. He has simply stated a remarkable culture is a place where people believe in the best in one another, want the best in one another and expect the best in one another. You know, you you speak a good bit in the book about, um, about maturity. And, um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that is so challenging for ministers and often because we have to put up or we feel like we have to put up a front, um, to not expose ourselves or to make ourselves vulnerable. Um, you know, one of the maybe one of the qualities of maturity is is some vulnerability, and you talk a good bit about uh, the maturity and introspection and evaluation and collaboration that's necessary in order to enhance ourselves and also enhance the organization that we're a part of.
1: Well, we do talk a lot about that, and a big part of humility is um, acknowledging the frailty of our humanity. But more than that, it's this desire to move toward maturity. And in order to do that, we have to be open to receiving feedback from other people. Here's one of the interesting things, Andy, is that in my experience, it's very challenging for leaders, um, particularly to receive feedback. I mean, leaders are often good at delivering feedback and telling other people what to do, offering performance reviews, coaching other people up. But when I ask leaders, how often do you ask those that you serve, in other words, those that you lead, how often do you ask them to evaluate your performance or give you feedback on how well you're doing in serving them? Uh, unfortunately, I get a lot of blank stares because most leaders have never thought about allowing their direct reports to give them feedback. Or if it's a pastor, his team members giving him or her you know, feedback. And so it's, The ability to not only uh, give strong feedback, but the ability to receive feedback and not only to receive it, but to aggressively seek feedback is, I think, one of the healthiest things that anybody can do to begin to see their own shortcomings, their blind spots and move in a healthy way toward maturity. But we talk a lot in the book about how do you respond when you receive feedback We we have what we call the growth spiral. When you receive feedback that's difficult to hear, you have one of two options. You can either get defensive and descend the growth spiral to rationalization, stagnation, and ultimately desperation, or you can embrace that feedback and move up the growth spiral toward maturity, which ultimately leads to inspiration because you've had the opportunity to absorb and analyze and gain information that leads to personal transformation. So I think I think this idea of being able to to receive feedback is is profound.
0: What does that look like? What does it practically look like to open yourself up for for criticism, uh, for healthy feedback?
1: Yeah. Well, here, here's a practical. And maybe this is the best way to to uh, get to it is to give a very practical suggestion on how you can you can garner feedback. Um, I, I often use this with my wife, but you can use this with your children or a team member, but take any topic that's germane to that particular relationship. So let's just, let's take, uh, your marriage for instance. And so topics that would be pertinent to my relationship with my wife, Luanne would be things like, uh, uh communication, uh, time together, finances, parenting, intimacy, uh, you know, emotional connection, all of those topics would be, would be of interest. And what I would do is just sit down and choose one or two of those. And I would ask her and say, and I have done this even recently, baby, how, how on a scale of one to 10, with one being abysmal and 10 being absolutely off the charts, out of this world stellar, how am I doing in our relationship when it comes to my communication with you? And just let her rate it on one to 10. And it's not really important how that person rates it. I would never engage in a debate about, you know, um, whether or not I feel like that score is appropriate because it may be helpful to understand that most of the time uh, the women will rate any of those given areas, maybe one or two points lower than we might. So let's just say, I think our communication is an eight, but she gives it a six. That's not what's important. The follow-up question really is where the, the gold lies, Because the follow-up question is this, okay, well, if you've rated my communication a six, in your mind's eye, what would it take to move that area of our relationship from a six to a 10? And now all of a sudden I have her telling me my action steps that I need to take to improve our relationship in that area. And so if I'll focus on Doing those things that she feels like would improve our relationship. Now, what I've done is I've I've demonstrated not only a, a commitment to make it better, but the intentionality to execute on the suggestions that she's made, which is incredibly uh, endearing. And so then, I, after a month or two or three, I circle back around and go, "Hey, you know, you had rated it a six previously. How am I doing now? How would you rate it now?" And what I can tell you is that. Just the simple fact that we're asking for feedback and that person is giving us some practical steps that we can apply to make it better is profound. And so you can take that simple exercise and use it with your children. You can use it with your colleagues or your direct reports uh, with um, with profound impact to be able to get feedback, actionable things that you can do to improve that relationship.
0: What are some, you know, that's on an individual level, but what are some healthy ways you've seen um, organizations or collaborative staffs begin to um, build what you're talking about together as a team?
1: Yeah. Well, as a team, you know, it's interesting to me in the marketplace, we do what we call 360 degree evaluations, which is just simply a way that you garner feedback from people around you, above you, below you, and they give you feedback on your blind spots. I think that's fine and it's good, but it's interesting because we have institutionalized what should be a natural relational occurrence. Because I think that what we need to do with an organizational life is to create this open, trusting atmosphere that creates open loops of continuous feedback. Because when we have open loops of feedback in every relationship, meaning that at any given point in time, I can come and sit down with you and we could talk about anything that's important. you have those open loops of feedback, then your organization becomes self-coaching and self-correcting. We talk a lot in the book about different levels of coaching conversations, and that ranges from complimentary to curious coaching conversations, to concerned, all the way to corrective. And sometimes, you know, sometimes those conversations need to move into what we call raw conversations. Raw, R-A-W, which is an acronym, but Raw conversations are the more difficult conversations to have because it's it's offering that feedback that's that's hard to hear and it's hard to deliver. But here's the thing, Andy, if we can begin to have ongoing coaching conversations when small things are awry, when relationships begin to slide sideways, or there's there's you know minor conflict, if we can correct it in its earliest stages or, or to you know intercept the entropy early, and have those open loops of feedback, then we can prevent a lot of the drama and a lot of the more damaging conflict that often we see uh, in circles uh, of in organizational life. And so this idea of openness to feedback and continual coaching, that's, that's the, the key. The challenge becomes if people aren't open to that. You made a reference to our definition of a remarkable culture a little earlier. It's a place where people believe the best in one another. Therefore, they want the best for one another, and they expect the best from one another. The first element talks to trust, believing the best in one another. The second part speaks to compassion and connection. We have to be deeply connected. People need to know that we have their best interests at heart. And then and only then, can we expect the best from people, meaning accountability, making sure that everyone is acting responsibly within organizational life? Here, here's the problem. Oftentimes, top-tier leaders uh, aren't open to that kind of feedback. Um, it's challenging to them. They're threatened by it. There's insecurity in the ranks. It's interesting because one of the, one of the biggest concerns that many leaders have is this deep, nagging, underlying question that haunts them. And it goes something like this, though they may never articulate it, it's buried deep within their soul. And it's this idea of how soon will it be until they've that I'm not all I purport to be. And then some leaders just fear this idea of exposure when in reality, authenticity sets you free to be who you really are, who God designed you to be uh, with your warts, your freckles and all.
0: Well, I'm sure for you, um, accountability within the organizations that you uh, consult with has, has changed over the last couple of years. Um, now that the culture is, seems to be more open to, to racism and sexism and sexual harassment and ageism, how has the language of accountability taken on new forms or wh- how is it nuanced for you as you work with organizations?
1: Well, again, I think it's really critical that accountability be uh, moved in every direction in organizational life. Sometimes when we think about accountability as top down, uh, but the old command and control strategies of the past, motivation by fear, um, you know, conformity by force, I think a lot of those are falling by the wayside because people are beginning to understand that people don't want to work for you. They want to work with you. And so I think that those leaders who truly do understand servant leadership and serve from a place of how can I, how can I serve to remove the obstacles that may prevent you from being able to achieve your best self and and to see the, the results and the success that you desire. I think leaders who serve with a spirit of humility and are open to that feedback and they demonstrate that they're willing to be held accountable. Um, that's what really begins to engender trust among fellowship. Um, we often say that, that people ask three questions when they're determining within their own spirit, whether or not they're going to follow you. And the first question is, can I trust this person? Uh, Trust again is a combination of six different factors, I believe. But if someone is trustworthy, it means that they're going to be consistent, uh, they're not going to panic when things go go bad. They're going to be the same. They're going to assume responsibility. They're not going to throw people under the bus. They're going to act with integrity. They're going to do the right thing, even when it's difficult. So the first question people ask is, "Can I trust this person?" The second question they ask is, "Do I respect this person?" Uh, does this person have the the knowledge, the skill, the competency to deliver on their promises? And so that's the second question they want to know: Is this person dependable? And then the third question I think is, is really profound is, does this person have my best interest at heart? And when people know that a leader truly has their best interest at heart, they want to see them grow. They want to see them develop. They understand their challenges. They they know what they aspire to. Those Then those leaders are the ones that garner fellowship the best.
0: There's a powerful quote that comes from the book. When everyone is held accountable, details are thoroughly covered and deadlines are met because actions are coordinated. Gaps are closed, information flows freely, and collaboration is encouraged to the maximum talent of the team. Accountability breeds awareness, and awareness creates synergy because each person knows what others are doing and is able to leverage the strength effectively.
1: That's right. What was
0: the... What's the most challenging portion of this book to implement into
1: action? Mm. Well, I think probably one of the more uh, penetrating uh, chapters is chapter seven. It's entitled face value. And uh, I make a statement. It's a pretty strong statement in there as I tell the story about an executive that I worked with. And it's a statement that I made to him. And I said, I can tell the quality of a leader. By the expression on the face of their spouse, um, I really believe that God has given us our, our our spouse, our counterpart, to be a reflection to us of those areas in our own lives that we need to to look at and focus on more. They know us better than anybody else they walk with us most closely they they know our strengths they have to endure our weaknesses and and i think that our our spouses truly are billboards they're their mirrors back to us of those things that we need to work on and begin to to crystallize and ask god to continue to conform into the image of his son but i talk about a leader who was on the verge of divorce and he um, as we were uh, as i was coaching him i simply made the statement that his wife um, was his greatest business coach that he could possibly have. And he didn't understand that because she was not involved in the business whatsoever. And uh, he challenged me, and pushed back. And I said, no, she she knows the business because she knows you. And uh, long story short, he was, to his credit, was very uh, open and desperately wanted to, to save a relationship that was on the verge of a divorce. And we spent as much time working on personal issues in his own life as we did and talking about, team dynamics and cultivating the team. But what was remarkable was the lessons that he learned and he applied at home, those very same lessons he was able to take and use with his team in the marketplace with profound impact. And so I think that this whole idea that, that relational development flows through every area of our life. And these principles are transcendent that they're not just for the marketplace. They're not just for church life but they can be used to enhance our personal lives as well.
0: What's your greatest hope for the book?
1: You know, my greatest hope for the book, Andy, is that that when people read it, they would receive encouragement. Um, I think that uh, we talk about this self-help conundrum, as we mentioned a little bit earlier. We don't lack for, for self-help material in the marketplace. You go to any bookstore, and it's probably the largest section that you're going to encounter. The challenge is we just don't know where to start. And so my hope and my prayer for this book is that for leaders, regardless of you know where they they uh, work and lead, whether it's in the church or it's in a nonprofit organization, they in the marketplace, that these principles would provide a starting point, a place where they could... Uh, really begin to to sink some some roots and put some things into practice that can immediately be applied to move themselves toward maturity and help them develop stronger teams. So the book
0: just came out, which meant you probably finished work on this a long time ago. So what's next for you?
1: Well, I think that we're excited about being able to herald this mark this message into the marketplace and. And want to continue to do what we do, which is to encourage individuals and teams to be able to um, uh, maximize their effectiveness by cultivating healthy relationships. Because healthy relationships lead to healthier and happy li- happier lives. And so if we can continue to, to push that message out into the marketplace with all of its practical implications, then we're, we're happy to do that.
0: For those that want to stay connected with Randy, you can follow him on Twitter, Dr. Randy Ross. You can also find his website, drrandyross.com. Randy, thank you for challenging us to, to consider how we might collaborate better together for the sake of the organization, not just for ourselves.
1: Well, I appreciate it, Andy. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you and, and hope that your listeners find encouragement not only in our time together, but also have a, an opportunity to uh, pick up a copy of the book.
0: Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.